Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Hey everyone, we are in for a treat if you're interested in hormones because we have the three-time best-selling author, the board-certified integrative MD, and the host of the Superwoman Wellness Podcast, the one and only Dr. Taz, back on the show to talk, yes, all things hormones. Dr. Taz, welcome back. Great to see you. Good to see you, Jason. Always so good to connect. I think we've made so much progress in the wellness world, yet when it comes to hormones, it feels like we're still not quite there with hormone balancing. So what are some of the common mistakes we're making when it comes to hormone balance? Yeah, I think that's a great big question. I think the the good news is someone who's done this for a while and looks back is that there's a lot more awareness now around hormones. I think there's more appreciation of the fact that hormones are something we need to pay attention to and they're connected to other symptoms that women of all ages feel, even our youngest. So I think that's a win. I think where we still need a lot of work is really understanding how all systems of the body are connected and influence hormones. So that can mean your emotions, it can mean what's happening in your gut. It can mean what's happening within your liver and how toxicity impacts you. It can even have to do with, you know, sort of, you know, what is happening with you cognitively and in your work environment. There are so many factors that influence hormones uh, in women. And I think until we can pull back and get out of this mentality, well, if you take this, you'll be okay. And if you take that, you'll be okay. And really, you know, learn to put all the pieces together. I think women will continue to struggle with really trying to find solutions to their hormone issues. Well, you bring up another point, which I think is important. If you start taking this and you'll be okay, or if you start doing that and you'll be okay. Once you start lifestyle intervention, interventions, whether it's diet, supplementation, sleep, whatever, the, the numerous lifestyle interventions, how long does it generally take to see results? How does one know if what they're doing is working? I always say, you know, when we're doing things naturally, whether that's through food or whether that's taking herbs or supplements, you've got to give it a minimum of three to four weeks. And when we're talking hormones, honestly, three months, because it really takes that amount of time to reset hormone levels, to change kind of the signaling and the wiring in the body. I've had so many patients that say, oh my gosh, I tried that diet for a week, it didn't work, or I tried this and it didn't work. But again, did they really give it the amount of time it needs? Now, compare that to some of our pharmaceuticals, right? Like if birth control is something that you go on or you do pellets where hormones are getting injected into you or all the different options that are out there, those are a little bit more immediate. You, you notice those pretty quickly, usually within a week or two. So I think when you're making these changes, you have to be a little bit patient with yourself and you have to get out of sort of this mindset that, you know, I want to fix tomorrow. I need this gone tomorrow because oftentimes that mentality, as we're seeing, you know, with so many different things works against us. So you mentioned food. We believe food is medicine here. And something you've previously discussed is the gut hormone connection. Can you give us a primer? Sure. Oh my goodness. So there's so much more information since we even talked about it last. I mean, I think, at, you know, bottom line, our hormones are metabolized in the gut. 
I think that if we don't have a good microbiome or good microbial balance, right, then the hormones don't get used properly by the rest of the body. And in fact, we're learning more and more about the estrabolome, which is the microbiome that you need to use estrogen properly. And if you have one shift here or one shift there, you go from having estrogen and feeling amazing to having estrogen and then storing it and having so many different ramifications of it. So I think uh, how we digest the food, how we break foods down, how we absorb nutrients, all of that's a gut conversation more so than our choices. So we've got to get that gut to be in a good shape to then balance our hormones. That's the key to natural hormone balance is really looking at the gut and then looking at the liver before you even pay attention to hormones. On the subject of food, again, I know it's so hard to generalize, but I always try to get people to do so. H how should one eat for hormone balance? Any specific foods you think are particularly great that we should enjoy and then the flip side foods we should generally avoid? Well, I think we can make it easy. Here are some things that I consistently see, you know, whether your hormone challenge is too much estrogen or a thyroid or progesterone issues or insulin, whatever it is. One of the things that are very consistent across the board is that everybody needs to get a lot more fiber. We are simply not getting the fiber we need. Remember, we get fiber in plant-based foods from fruits and vegetables. We do get them from grains, you know, but many people can't tolerate grains. So what's happening is many, you know, I find more and more patients eating these, you know, salads that are kind of anemic, honestly. They don't have the fiber content that people think it has in it. And they end the day you know, falling really short of the 40 grams of fiber per day that we're recommending across the board and specifically for hormone balance. So I think really understanding what fiber looks like and its role in hormone balance is key. I think the other category is fats, you know, and I think the fat phobia might be dying. I think people are starting to embrace fat and understand the importance of fat, but they still don't really have their heads locked around. How do I get this fat you know, in my system and what's the right way to do it without gaining weight or driving my lipids up or some of these other things. So getting in those omega-9 fats, which are from olive oil or nuts and seeds, and then getting in the omega-3 fats, which again, fatty fishes, salmon, tuna, some of those type of things is really important because cholesterol basically is made from fat. And remember, cholesterol is the building block for all our hormones. So, you know, it's sort of this catch-22 that we're so trained again to think of cholesterol's bad, cholesterol's bad, but we need a certain amount of cholesterol to build hormones. So again, getting those fats in is really critical. So anyone who's on a fat-free diet or who's lost a lot of weight or who's restricting fat pretty significantly or is fat malabsorbing, meaning they're just spilling fat from their intestinal lining, those are all people at risk of hormone imbalances for sure. So we've talked about fiber. We've talked about fat. And I think the other piece, oh my gosh, there's so many different directions to go in. But I think a really important piece of the puzzle is protein, because what we're understanding there is that when protein falls too low and we're not protein timing, meaning we're not eating the amount, right amount of protein at the right intervals, then we allow insulin, right, the blood sugar hormone to get out of control. And that in turn drives this whole hormone chain of more androgens, which are sort of the hormones that cause hair loss and acne, storing estrogen, which then results in the belly fat and the back fat that so many people complain about, and really impacting even your thyroid and your adrenals because all these hormones at the end of the day talk to each other. 
So again, thinking through those three sort of categories and then thinking about the foods that match each category is a way to begin sort of eating for your hormones. So I think eating consistently, getting the protein in, getting the fiber in, and then getting the healthy fats in. And notice that I didn't say take this out and take that out. I want people thinking of more of what they can bring in so they're not feeling so restricted and like they're they're not able to live a happy life and go to a restaurant and all these other things that we all like to do. I hear you loud and clear on the omega-3s and 9s as great sources of healthy fats. In terms of fiber, what are some of your favorite sources? Yeah, I mean, the first rule of thumb look is like just getting six to eight servings of fruits and vegetables in a day. And the way to do that is every meal, half that plate needs to really consist of that. So whether that's breakfast, whether it's a smoothie, whether it's lunch, dinner, you know, your plate really should be looking like that. That's how you're going to get to that number. But sometimes it's hard, right? You might be running, you might be traveling, busy in carpool, whatever it is, it's hard to really get that. So then adding in like a tablespoon of ground flaxseed or ground chia seeds, adding in psyllium husk, those are some additional ways to get fiber in. And remember, some of our protein sources are also fiber sources. So getting in like, you know, the beans and lentils, you know, all, chickpeas, all of those things have fiber in them that, you know, also can help your hormone balance. So you mentioned breakfast and breakfast is a great builder for the day. Yeah. And so you mentioned protein, fat, and fiber. Do you have a go-to breakfast that, that you I recommend? Do. I do. And I'm kind of boring, which is bad, but I can't live without my morning smoothies. And that sounds very like, okay, we've heard about smoothies forever now, but it's the truth. I mean, I've tried to play around with other things, but I'm not ready to sit and I don't have time, honestly, to sit and eat a big breakfast, but really getting that smoothie and all its concoctions right at least four or five days of the week is my go-to breakfast. So I'll do, you know, at least two scoops of a protein powder. I'll add in, I'll have fun with it. Today I added in half a banana and some instant coffee to give it more of a coffee flavor. Sometimes I'll add the fiber in there. I'll add the ground flax seeds or the ground chia seeds in there. And I'm always playing with it, you know, that you can always do something different. And about four days a week is what I usually go for. And then on the other days, you know, usually I'm with the family. So we have fun. We do have a lot of fun with food. So we might be doing, you know, omelets or we might be making like a breakfast casserole of some kind. But those are days that we're actually in the kitchen and cooking and making stuff. Now, it's been super interesting. So my daughter is now 14, believe it or not, and very into nutrition and fitness. And of course, she gets most of her information not from me, but from TikTok, which is a different story. Said exactly. Oh, no. But I will say that she is bringing in some interesting hacks, things I might not have thought about. So, for example, like the whole overnight oat trend, right, where you're adding protein powder to your oatmeal. So you're getting both your uh, protein and fiber, you know, one scoop there. And then she's got all these other hacks of how to make yogurt even higher in protein than where it is currently. So, I mean, it's been fun to watch her play with food. It's also been irritating because she doesn't listen to anything I say, but I think that just goes with the age. But but yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of tricks and hacks to get the protein in. If you're like me and you're running around and you're, you know, juggling 50 million things in the morning, then for me, it's those smoothies, those things I can carry with me that really make for a good breakfast. Now, in addition to what you have for breakfast, is there anything specific to your morning routine that can help with hormone balance? I mean, I think that's where the mindfulness part comes into this conversation, right? I mean... And that's a journey. I think I thought I had mindfulness down three years ago and I'm in a different place today than I was three years ago. 
So I think just understanding, and this is a very fundamental Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine concept, right? That I've read about, that I intellectually understand, but emotionally it's different. But, you know, they very much believe that stress and anger and trauma all live within ourselves. It lives within our body and more specifically within certain organs. So, you know, if you've had a chaotic upbringing or you've had you know, if you're angry about something, it's going to sit in your liver. What is, you know, the liver is one of the most important hormone organs. It's helping us break things down, helping us detox, all that other stuff. And as that emotion accumulates, they visually talk about like almost like a mass kind of congealing and sitting there and blocking energy so that then your hormones no longer function or no longer do what they're supposed to do. And so I know all this. I've studied all this. You know, Ayurvedic medicine says the same thing. Your stress. You know, your anger, your fire, all of that lives in the gut. Too much of that, you wear the gut down, you start having all these digestive issues, bloating, constipation, all of this other stuff. But how do you master that? Like, you know, you got to live life. And I run a company. I have teenagers now. Uh, you know, my husband's busy. We have extended family. You know, we have all these variables that will pull us on any given day. And if you don't have a ritual in the morning, then the day dictates you rather than you dictating the day. And so what I've tried to become more and more consistent with, and it's really hard. I mean, I don't know how many moms are listening, but they can probably relate because like you set this ritual. You're like, okay, here are my 15 minutes for me in the morning. And guess who? I love my husband dearly, but guess who shows up? Like, oh my gosh, I made you tea. Can I sit with you? And I'm like, okay, you know, like this is my 15 minutes, you know, and then the other day I'm like, I set aside 15 minutes in a different space and my daughter shows up or somebody else shows up. So it's so hard to claim that time, but that 20, 15 to 20 minutes, whatever you want to do, you know, and I, I get bored. So I'm always playing with what I do. So sometimes it's meditation. Sometimes I'm journaling, you know, right now I'm doing morning pages again. I don't know if you've read about that or you know that what that is, but it's a uh, it's by Julia Cameron, who's an author. She wrote The Artist Way. And so just dumping out the noise from your brain, you know, onto paper, but some ritual in the morning that's for me and finding some space within your living quarters where you can kind of hole away for those 20 minutes and really just have your time before you look at the phone, before you check email, before you interact with, you know, everybody else. And that really does indeed set the tone of the day. So I love that. You know, some people add on to that. I know folks that wake up at 4.30 in the morning and it's meditation, mindfulness work for 15 to 20 minutes, then a one hour workout, then their breakfast, then they start their day, right? So I don't have that much time, but whatever it is for you, I think dumping these emotions out is critical and a big part of balancing your hormones, even though that sounds so woo-woo and a little bit out there. No, I love it. I, I love it. And look, we're mind, body, green after all. Mental, physical, yes. spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being all connected. So I love it. I love it. I, I want to come back to the how do we know. And one of the things you shared on social media, which I thought was interesting, is waking up at night is tied to hormonal imbalance. What? Th that's one of the signs. So I want to hear more about why waking up at night is, is tied to hormonal imbalance because a lot of people, I'm sure, wake up middle of the night and are there any other underrated sneaky signs if you will that may indicate hey may have a an issue there's so many goodness and you know it's like the body's whispering to you before it starts screaming at you but i think you know general inflammation which can show up in so many different ways 
It can show up as anxiety. It can show up as trouble focusing and concentrating or brain fog. It can show up as random rashes that come and go. And sometimes all these things are super quiet. You're just feeling more on edge. You don't even realize it. Somebody around you might realize it. You're usually able to complete a task in 30 minutes. Now it's taking an hour and you're constantly unfocused. You know, all of these things, all of these very subtle signs of inflammation are often tied to hormone imbalances. Now we also have the more obvious ones, right? The obvious ones are like when you're skipping periods or you're having hot flashes or night sweats or your periods are super heavy or you're having a lot of breast tenderness. Those are uh, what I call the more obvious ones. But all the sleep disturbances, I think the mood disturbances, I think some of the cognitive issues that I hear about over and over again, I think just this general sense of fatigue that many people describe to me, I think that's a big one too. I think all of those are the quieter sort of warning bells of hormone imbalances that people don't realize. Then we kind of get to the next phase, which is like acne and hair loss. You know, that those are big ones too. I think migraines are another one that can come up quite often. Joint pain starts to sneak in there. Weight gain, start, weight gain or loss, either one starts to creep up as well. So those are probably the next set. And then you get the big, the, even the bigger ones that we were talking about, like with fibroids or ovarian cysts or endometriosis, or I can't get pregnant, or I'm going into menopause or perimenopause. So like, it is all on a spectrum, right? It's like a car driving down a lane and, and you can slow it down and you can reverse it. Many people don't realize that. In fact, that's getting kind of discredited too. This whole idea that we have X number of eggs and, you know, when the eggs are done, we're done and we're kind of expired. All of that is kind of being taken into question now, being like, actually, no, you can regenerate eggs. And it has nothing to do with a finite number of eggs. It's more about, you know, generalized inflammation and aging in the body and all of these ideas. So there's some fascinating work coming out there where we just got it wrong when it comes to how women perceive their hormonal health. So you know, so yeah, it's everything from the quiet stuff to the really loud stuff to the really diagnostic stuff, but those are all related back to hormones. And all that hormone stuff is related back to gut and nutritional health. So you mentioned hair loss, which is something you've experienced personally, mm -hmm. and you shared on one of your podcast episodes. Yes. So can you briefly share your story and, and provide your, you know, cheat sheet, if you will, for those experiencing hair loss and what you did to restore healthy hair growth? Yeah, so I think hair loss is becoming an epidemic, and I think it's becoming an epidemic because PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome is becoming an epidemic, and those two are kind of tied hand in hand. And just the the quick minute on that, I mean, that's syndrome where androgens or like testosterone, DHT are super high and trigger this whole cascade of insulin resistance, all these hormone patterns that result in hair loss and acne and joint pain, weight gain, all this other stuff. Well, that was basically what was going on with me, but I didn't know it. And, you know, I was a perfect candidate for it. Now I can look back and understand it all. But, you know, very stressful childhood home, then, you know, college and trying to get into medical school and trying to do some of that on my own financially. So I had sort of this foundation of stress, right, of stress and, and anxiety and trauma, even to a certain extent before I even entered the medical profession. And then that had its own challenges, just physically, you know, like, you know, we would do 12 hour shifts and turn around the next day and do night shifts and then turn around and do day shifts and spend three days in the hospital. So no one really paid attention to what they were eating or drinking. It wasn't a part of it. You're just trying to get through that whole thing. 
and then took an ER job, which added to that, right? Where like there was no set schedule and I definitely didn't know a thing about nutrition. So Diet Coke and popcorn were kind of like my go-to because it was all about being fat-free and, you know, low calorie. And sure enough, my hair started to fall. My acne went from mild to super cystic. I mean, it was like all over the, you know, my jaw. And I remember spending money on facials and, you know, nothing would ever get better. My joints would hurt. And as I hit like sort of my 26, 27, 28, you know, that's when I started to gain weight as well. So it was this whole cascade of symptoms happening to me that probably started. That's why I'm so passionate about getting this information out early. It honestly, probably started if I was aware, you know, in my early 20s, probably 18, 19, 20, all of it probably really started then, but then just got to a point where literally most of my scalp was emptying out. Like I would look down and you could see my scalp and got to where I was not comfortable getting in clothes or going out. And I'm like 28 years old, you know, I should be in, you know, made it through med school, made it through residency, had a job, had an income. I should be celebrating, but instead I'm like hiding in the bathroom, you know? So that was really my journey into integrative medicine because every option that was given to me failed or had side effects or, you know, had devastating consequences. So that's really how I found the field. At the end of my sort of digging away and scratching and trying to understand what was happening to me, the story was fairly simple for all the work it took to get there. And that's what I see with patients too. It was essentially that I needed to be gluten-free and gluten was destroying my thyroid. So I was having all these thyroid abnormalities that were resulting in the hair loss. And the thyroid burden was creating sort of this stress you know, that was already, I already had a lot of stress, but it was raising my insulin levels up and it was driving my androgens up. And that was also triggering the acne and the weight gain and the inflammation and all that other, all these other symptoms, you know, that I experienced. So once I changed my diet and healed my gut and treated my thyroid, then everything, it took a year. It didn't happen overnight. It took like a year to maybe even 18 months, but everything kind of went away and my hair started coming back in, not to the, you know, not to the old days of being a teenager, but definitely came back in to where you couldn't, like, you're not looking at me being like, oh my gosh, something's wrong with her hair. So, you know, my cheat sheet when it comes to hair loss is first of all, get your hormones checked. Cause no matter, people ask me all the time, should I do PRP? Should I do laser? Should I do this? I go, you can do everything, but if the hormones aren't balanced, nothing will work or it'll work in just a little tiny amount and not really get you kind of over the fence there. So my cheat sheet is always check your hormones first, understand sort of where they fall, really get one of us to look at it like an integrative or functional medicine type doctor to look at it because our standards of what's normal are very different from, you know, kind of what's conventionally accepted. So to me, that's the first step. The second is to understand maybe the type of hair loss you're experiencing. Remember, there's hair loss that you just empty out your entire head that's typically thyroid or if it's just in the scalp, it's thyroid. There's hair loss where it just breaks. The hair just literally breaks in your hands and that's more nutritional. There's hair loss where each strand, you go from having these really thick strands to really these thin kind of almost like papery type strands in your hand. And that's more androgen or testosterone based. And then there's hair loss more from all the things we do to our hair and where we're just cutting off blood flow, you know, to the scalp, whether we're putting in extensions or we've got tight uh, hairstyles or hair products, or we're clogging up the follicles of the scalp. And then that's another type of hair loss. So understand the kind of hair loss you're experiencing. And then take a hard look at your diet. Make sure you're getting the protein you need. You're not getting a ton of anti-inflammatory foods in and, you know, foods high in sugar in. All of those things affect the hormones. 
pretty adversely and you're getting those healthy fats in so that you can build the hormone that you need. Fascinating. So if you had to guesstimate how much of hair loss is lifestyle induced versus genetic? Probably 75%. Wow. I think it's women are stressed. You know, I mean, they are, they're kind of like me, honestly, we're stressed and we don't know it, you know, and I think that's the issue and all that stress is internalized and it's suppressed and they're just trying to power through their days and they're just trying to get through their list. And and that's every age, by the way, it's, I see it in my daughter who's 14. I see it in, you know, my mom who's almost 70. I think it's every age and that internal stress is shifting the hormone patterns. That's one problem. The second problem, and the stress is interesting because in some ways we have stress because we're able to do so much, but the problem is that the society around us hasn't caught up to the fact that we're able to do so much, right? So, you know, talk to any mom, like childcare is a nightmare. It's a source of chronic stress. You know, talk to a single mom. The financial piece is out of control. You know, the young girls are battling like all kinds of anxiety and and pressures that social media like all this stuff that we didn't have to deal with you know so stress is very palpable across all ages of women i think that's why they're having so many hormone issues but the other part of the story is toxicity is up too right like we have more access to unhealthy food refined foods chemicals in our food toxic body care skin care all of these things and that cumulative load is what's really stressing out the liver. So you take our lifestyle stress and you add it to our environmental stress and we really have the perfect formula for hormone disruption. And that's why I'm always like, am I attracting all this PCOS into the practice and hair loss or is this really on the rise? I think the answer is it's on the rise. I mean, I can go out to the mall or to, you know, to any public gathering and I can look around and I can see kind of the epidemic of hormone disruption across the board. I mean, if you look at people, you know, you see people balding, you see all this acne, you see this puffiness, right, that people have when they're walking around. So it's almost like I feel like our environment is doing something to us and the science hasn't caught up for the physician or for the doctor to be like, this is what you need to be, this is what you need to do to stay ahead of the game. And I feel like that's where medicine needs to shift, especially for hormone health, because I think so much of our hormone health is a reflection of that. Agreed. Something else you mentioned, fatigue. So many of us are fatigued. It's two o'clock. I'm about to reach for my black coffee after the show. And and I love black coffee and yeah. I, I, I don't get the jitter. I, I'm, I guess I'm a fast metabolizer, but take me aside. You mentioned uh, on, on Instagram that if you're feeling sluggish during the day, you should actually stay away from coffee. Why is that? Well, what we're doing is, again, we are artificially elevating our blood sugar and our insulin levels and then bringing them crashing back down. So what happens is we're basically, every time we reach for coffee to stimulate us that way, we're jumping on this merry-go-round of, okay, we're going to feel better for an hour, two hours, but then we're going to come back down again. We're going to reach for something else. So instead, we want to level off that energy. We want to balance, again, what's happening. Any of us that are having that afternoon crash, that's cortisol, right? You're having a cortisol sort of crisis, so to speak. Either you're not sleeping deeply at night so that cortisol can be balanced during the day, or you're just in a stage of adrenal fatigue where you need some added support. So instead of coffee, 
getting your nutrients optimized, maybe going on adrenal adaptogens that indirectly support cortisol balance might be a better option to keep you off this train of like a big spike in insulin with a cup of coffee and then a big drop in blood sugar and insulin levels maybe a few hours later. So what are some of your favorite adrenal adaptogens? Oh my gosh, there's so many. So ashwagandha still is a tried and true. That's a great one. We still get great results in practice and even personally when we see that. I think for people that are on edge a lot, I still like holy basil and tulsi. I feel like it brings down that anxiety that some people get as they approach the afternoon. So that's when you could try to. And the entire mushroom family is amazing, right? Rishi, shiitake, all of those are great too for giving you kind of that afternoon sort of uh, jump that many people need. But I would also say like the B vitamins, right? So many people are just running low in B vitamins. That's the reason they crash or they're very low in a hormone called DHEA. And that's the reason that they're crashing. So sometimes we will, again, micro supplement some of these things to get folks feeling, you know, much better overall. You mentioned, you know, this is a show about hormones. And so something else that seems to be prevalent estrogen dominance. Yes. Any tips? You know, let's talk about estrogen dominance for a second. So estrogen dominance is this idea or this theory that we are accumulating and holding on to estrogen. And I feel like it is an epidemic. Again, a big part of it is environmental. A big part of it is again, stress and trauma and all of these emotional upheavals that people go through over time. And then food, you know, the lack of fiber, the lack of sort of the right fats, all of these contribute to estrogen dominance because they also contribute to an unhealthy gut and unhealthy liver. So with estrogen dominance, the rules are again, back to fiber. And this time maybe adding in more specifically the cruciferous vegetables, right? Because they have the things like indole-3-carbonyl that help to break estrogen down and move it from point A to point B. So that's always a great tip. I think adding in any liver supporting foods or drinks even helps estrogen dominance. So we love talking about green smoothies and dandelion tea and some of these type of things that flush the liver out and therefore help estrogen dominance overall. And then we do look into the world of supplements. I love, there's so many, but like DIM or calcium glucurate, milk thistle, these are methylated B vitamins. These are all things that have really over the course of my clinical practice, which we're now going on 13 years, has really proven to be helpful, has changed. You know, people will come in and say, you know, yeah, I have dense breasts or I have fibrocystic breasts or I have a fibroid, like all these signs and symptoms of estrogen dominance. And with the right regimen, we see it improve. It's true for me too. Like, you know, with the right regimen, we'll see a lot of my stuff start to improve on lab work and on radiology as well. So so again, a lot of it's diet and liver work and sleep. Everyone forgets about sleep. We got to talk about sleep for a second because sleep is not just about resting the brain. Sleep is also about cleaning up the liver and it's also about resting the gut. So sleep, when you know people talk about detoxes, hey, it's a new year, it's 2022, I'm going to do all this detox stuff. But remember, sleep is the ultimate detoxifier. So if we're not sleeping well, getting you know, falling asleep and staying asleep and all these other things, then we are going to have issues with gut and liver health. And if you think back, like when I'm doing ER work and residency work and all this other stuff, that's a big part of why I think I also got sick. We, we've touched on weight and something you tweeted, we all here at My Buddy Green, we talked about it with the team, that was super interesting. And it was about metabolism longevity. Yeah. And you once tweeted, quote, your metabolism is not gone. By some magic age, whether 30, 40, or 50, time isn't 
is a huge factor is your daily habits, nutrition, hormones are in determining the longevity and efficacy of your metabolism, end quote. I love that. So like, how, how can you, how, how can we all optimize our metabolism longevity? Yeah. So the more work that and research that's being done on metabolism, it's pretty fascinating. Almost all roads lead to that, that our resting metabolic rate or our metabolism in general is not necessarily dropping because of an age, right? People think I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm whatever, 55, 60, you know, I'm meant to be this way. And we're finding that's all false. What's really happening you know, which it, which might be the result of age, but if we understand it, then we can do something about it. What's really happening is that we're losing muscle mass. And as we lose muscle mass, because we're less active, that's what the studies are finding, that activity goes down during these decades too. But as we lose muscle mass, as we lose hormones, which help us build muscle, as our gut starts to slow down a little bit, and as the toxicity load kind of starts to accumulate all through these decades, that essentially is what's driving insulin, the blood sugar hormone again, back up. And as insulin goes up, and it's so interesting because I'll, I've started putting patients on glucometers now, right? And they'll get a prescription for a glucometer and they'll start tracking their blood sugars. And what they're bringing back to me is absolutely fascinating. Like, you know, they'll find not just the known foods that drive up blood sugar, but many times we're all just eating too much. You know, we're eating big salads that drive a blood sugar up a hundred points. You know, we are sitting all day, which drives the blood sugar up. And so this one particular patient yesterday was like, I'm tracking my blood sugars on this glucometer. And the minute I see it go up, I start walking or I move around a little bit. And she goes, the crunch foods, like the crackers and the chips, even if I just do a little bit here and a little bit there, all of that's driving it up. And by sticking to stuff like this, my patients are losing weight left and right because they're simply realizing that you've got to get the protein, you've got to get the fiber, and there's not a lot of room if you're going to sit on your computer all day long to really crunch and get in the chips and the crackers and things like that and, and really what a serving is. And so I think as people start to wrap their head around that and understand the importance of building muscle, and that goes back to, you know, getting the protein and the nutrients you need, that's really what preserves your metabolic rate and even reverses it. Sometimes you can have a better metabolic rate than what you had in your 20s when you're doing these things. So I think that's the big myth that this whole middle-aged spread is unavoidable. There's nothing you can do about it. It's a lot about building muscle, getting protein, watching portions and balancing your hormones, right? Because the hormones play directly into how much muscle mass you can build. So I think it's in that equation that we've really got to look when we're trying to understand metabolism. I'm glad you mentioned sarcopenia because it, it's real. Yeah. And I, I feel like we don't really talk about it enough, specifically with regard with women. I think with men, maybe we talk about it a bit more. You know, it's important to regain or not regain, but retain your muscle mass to some degree as you age. It's very important. I mean, muscle, we're learning that muscle mass is really an endocrine organ, you know? So when we start to lose muscle, then we directly see the effects on blood sugar and, you know, insulin levels and all these other things. And we don't talk about it very much. And we talk about fitness, right? I think people talk about fitness and exercise quite a bit. But I feel bad, like people are out there like, you know, on the Peloton and they're doing marathons and all this other stuff, but they're not building muscle. And so they get really frustrated with like, I'm working out, I run five times a week. Why am I gaining weight? 
it goes back to the fact that if you're not building muscle, no amount of activity that you're doing is necessarily going to maintain your metabolic rate. And sometimes these extreme workouts, they're fun as a challenge, right? And even I like to challenge and see, you know, kind of how far I can go on something. But what they're doing is creating more stress to the body and driving hunger up significantly. So we're back to that issue of portion control and like really what a portion is, you know, and kind of wrapping our head and our minds around that. And you don't necessarily have to go to CrossFit or start, you know, lifting heavy mm -hmm. weights. It could be as simple as some push-ups, sit-ups, some body weight exercises, all stuff you could do in the comfort of your home, right? Definitely. Yeah. And it's 20, 20 to 30 minutes. You know, if you can do 20 to 30 minutes of weight training twice a week and then just stay super active the rest of the time, you know, then I think that in itself does a lot. Let's go back to my patient saying the minute she sees her blood sugar up, she just starts walking, you know, and in that whole process, she was able to lose 15 to 20 pounds. She wasn't doing anything extreme. There was nothing extreme that she was doing. And she was well over 50, by the way. So, you know, so I think that all these things are possible. It's just what we've been taught and what we're used to. There's such a gap between all of that, that it takes a lot of training and a lot of like, you know, mindfulness and being in the moment and being very present to make all of this a reality. Yes very important. <laughs> and in closing, we're going to go a little off topic, uh, hormones, but I think it's so important and so powerful. You know, you previously discussed in our annual wellness trends piece, which we'll link to in the show notes, your serious and almost fatal case of medical gaslighting. Yeah. So can you share that experience with our audience? Yeah. I mean, that takes us back to this whole phase in my 20s, right, where I'm getting sicker and sicker. I'm still really not doing anything about it. Remember, and we may have talked about this before, and I see this today, there's a lot of shame in not just being sick, but not being yourself, right? And I think I'm a firsthand, you know, sort of witness to what that shame can feel like, where I'm a doctor, and I've got a lot of knowledge, but there was so much shame in the fact that I wasn't myself or I wasn't quite myself that I didn't want to go get help. I didn't want to get answers. And it's such a, a brave step for anyone. And I have so much empathy for people walking into any medical practice and taking the time to make that appointment and taking the time to go sit with somebody because you've crossed that bridge of shame. And now you've admitted that like, okay, I've got to go talk to somebody about this. So I wasn't willing to talk to anybody about anything, but my, I was dating my husband at the time and my mom, like, kind of did an intervention, I guess, in a way they wouldn't have called it that, but they were just both like, we're really worried. Like, this is not you, like you don't look the same. We don't care how you look, but at the same time, we can tell it's not you. I'm really worried you're sick. Like my mom thought I had cancer, you know, like all this stuff. So she was like, can you please go get help? You know, and they had to tiptoe around me, which I feel so bad for because I'm the doctor. Neither one of them were physicians, right? So I finally do it and I go to see the doctor and it's the most sort of disempowering, if that's a word, experience, right? Like, oh, you're distressed. You need to go get some more sleep. So I got an anxiety medication. And then I'm not satisfied with that. So I went to an endocrinologist. They're like, well, we can put you on birth control. And I knew birth control, you know, was not going to be an answer. We even had so many issues with that before. So I'm like, I can't go on birth control. Then went to a hair loss specialist who's supposed to be esteemed, like, naturally know like all the you know all the pedigree and all that other good stuff and he actually you know looked at me straight he's like if you don't do something you're gonna be bald so you need to choose because he'd already known that i'd been to like three other doctors before 
And so he put me on an anti-androgen drug called spironolactone, which I still prescribe even today. But what didn't happen is an explanation of the side effects, understanding where I was, like my blood pressure and all this other stuff. And I historically always have had super low blood pressure. I didn't think twice about it because I'm already so upset about the fact that I'm there to begin with, you know, so I didn't even spend a lot of time thinking and evaluating and analyzing all this and as I would do for a patient. But again, it's that whole thing. I didn't do it for myself. I do it for somebody else, but I didn't do it for me. And so I get up one morning, I start the medication. I head over to go work out and do my usual workout, jump back in the car and start getting super light at it, you know, and I'm like, okay, that's weird. And start the car and I pass out. Like I start driving and I pass, like literally pass out and end up, I was so close to hitting somebody in front of me. So I swerved. The car ended up getting severely damaged, but more importantly, like, you know, I, something could have happened to me, you know? So that was sort of my, like, I'm going to, this is not working. I've got to figure this out. So in that entire journey for me, there were so many instances of gaslighting, being told I was stressed, being told I was anxious. Nobody digging in and looking at my numbers or looking at my hormone values or anything else. No one looking at my blood pressure, you know, not looking at my blood pressure, not looking at my vitals, not connecting the dots on what a certain medication may or may not do to me. And it's just, it's, it was just a horrible experience. I don't know how else to describe it, you know? And so it was where I was sort of like, I've got to stop playing the victim. Like, I can't walk around being the victim here. Like, I've got to take charge. Let me use my own brain on me and see if I can find answers. And that began the journey into holistic and integrated medicine. There was a weekend course on holistic medicine in Colorado. My husband and I flew out there. And I'm like, I just want to go and learn. And it opened up this whole world, you know, and it led me to do the acupuncture training and the herbal medicine training and finally did the fellowship with Andy you know, Andy Weil out in Arizona, which was game changing and I could finally heal myself. But that story of feeling, first of all, very ashamed, then feeling dismissed, then not getting communicated to, and, you know, not really being able to find answers continues to this day. It is a story I continue to witness in my patients firsthand. And even for me, like anytime I have to go outside of my little practice ecosystem for anything, I see it again. I see sort of this like, you know, we'll just go there, just go do that. Like the system that's incredibly broken and people that no longer care, like there's a lack of a relationship, right? It's become an industry like, okay, volume, get people in, get people out, let's move this new train. And I think in all of that gaslighting, or having your symptoms, your concerns, your medical history, you know, your personal sort of makeup dismissed is the norm. I think it's completely the norm. And it's the norm because you need to see 40 patients as a doctor in a given day. And nobody cares about your outcomes or the relationship that you may or may not have with your patients. All about, all anyone cares about for you to get your paycheck is that you move through this volume. And whether you do it with grace or whether you do it with a lot of attention to detail is irrelevant. You just need to get through it. And so it has broken my colleagues. It has broken the amazing people I went to medical school with. Everyone is just waiting to get out. They don't have this passion, you know, for medicine or for the human body. Like I'm fascinated. I'm intrigued. I continue to be like a little kid in a candy store in my practice. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did that happen? Like, you know what I mean? I have the opportunity to hear stories 
and to help people cross that bridge from shame to answers, and then to be able to see them thrive. And nothing in life is more motivating than that. But my colleagues don't have that opportunity because you have a system that's incredibly broken and one that really does promote gaslighting and, and specifically gaslighting for women's health issues because they haven't gotten the intention and the research dollars and the media press that they really need. So what advice do you have for someone listening who's nodding yes, yes, and yes, and, and feel like, and they feel like they're not being heard and that they might be a victim of gaslighting? What advice do you have for that person? Yeah. So I think the first is you're not crazy and it's not in your head. And I think once you accept that, because you're, you have your own intuition about yourself, once you accept that, then you can start the search for finding answers. And I think if you're not happy with you know, your encounter or your answer with one particular medical experience, then you seek another. And I think you get three or four opinions on any given issue and you put that information together and you very much have to be your own advocate. And I think in more serious conditions, people don't have the energy to be their own advocate. Well, then I think you enlist the help of someone to, it could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be, you can even hire somebody but they become your advocate and they look at all the options and the possibilities and sort of sit there and chart it out for you. Now, the integrative and functional community, I feel like we do a better job overall because we have time. And I think that gift of time with the patient allows us to delve a little bit more into all the nuances that are involved in taking care of somebody. But I think at the end of the day, even we don't even wanna say it's integrative versus conventional. We just wanna say you need a good relationship with good communication and openness to explore all the possibilities. And I think if you don't have that partner, if you don't have that medical partner, you need to be looking elsewhere because you are not gonna be served to your best interest. So I think, you know, demand answers, get over the shame, find an advocate, and don't be satisfied until you're truly better. Yeah, I love everything you said and to build off of it in my own experience. I've, don't be afraid to seek a second, third, fourth opinion to educate yourself. Education is empowerment. So educate yourself. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You need to feel like you're being heard. And you also need to feel somewhat of a connection with, with totally. your doctor. And if you don't, that's okay. And it may not be the right fit, but I think you have to ultimately you know, whether it's become the, the CEO of, of your own healthcare or the conductor of your own healthcare orchestra or whatever metaphor you want to use, like you, you kind of have to take control and, and always, 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 again, I'll reiterate, listen to your gut. We know everything. Yeah. You know, it's just how much are you going to listen to? Yeah. How much are you willing? And I think don't be a victim of shame. And I think that's the issue. I think that's what stops people. Don't be a victim of that. You know, there is the body, I will tell you, however many, I mean, I've been a doctor now for over 20 years and in integrative medicine for 13 or so or 14 years. The body's incredible. It will heal. You know, I continue to believe that with all my heart. It absolutely heals. You just need the right sort of conduits to help you and the right guides to help you get there. So there's no reason for any shame. You just have to believe that and it absolutely happened. Amen. Dr. Taz, thank you so much. Thank you.